for me, kind of the long and short of that, I don't get too ass-chapped about these distinctions because I think what people are trying to do is to get some simple rules to help people buy in and do something different. Like you can't just nuke people with every bit of detail around nutrition and, and diet and lifestyle change if they're trying to do something new. Um, you've got to have some starting place. And some people pick vegan, some people pick a Mediterranean diet, some people are more in this ancestral health, paleo, keto, uh, uh, carnivore. And I think that what they're trying to do by and large is just provide some simple heuristics, some simple rules of thumb to be able to start with and move people forward. The real danger in all that to me is that then people take these simple stories and carve them into stone and create religious doctrine. And then, it, and then it, that's where the shit show starts because then you get the factionalization and people dig in their heels. We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run. Always chasing. Never stop. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. How are you, Ben? I am doing good, Patrick. Thank you. Good. We are joined today by a special guest. Rob Wolf has joined us from his 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 new home in Montana. <laughs> he was just telling us that he just drove across the country to get there. So uh, thank you, Rob, for, for taking the time to talk to us today. For folks who maybe don't know who Rob is, uh, I imagine they're very few and far between. Um, but Rob, you are an author, best selling author of Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat, Sacred Cow. You're the founder of Element. And you are the host uh, of the Healthy Rebellion Radio. Is that what you guys call it? Healthy Rebellion Radio and the community that is sort of your building with that. Yeah. And so given all that, you know, I think all three of us have, have sort of started at least in the, the specifics of the CrossFit community roughly around the same time, 2006. Maybe actually, Rob, you probably even just a smidge earlier than us. But we, we've been doing this thing. Talk, yes. you know, <laughs> yeah. So we've been talking about this for a long time. And so we, the three of us have obviously run into each other over the years. Um, and Rob, I first came across you, first met you when you were on the level one and you were the, you know, you, people felt lucky when you showed up to an L1 because they knew the nutrition lecture was going to somehow be, you know, be jacked up. And so I remember those. Um, and, you know, over the years, whatever that is, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever, uh, you, I've, you know, we've watched you do a lot of different things, right? Uh, uh, writing, researching, all of these things. And so I'm really curious. I think my first question to you is, what do you consider yourself like, right? If you're, if you're at a party, not that we go oh, to parties man. anymore, but like, how do you introduce yourself at this point? Are you an author? Are you a researcher? Are you a fill in the blank? I'm really curious, given your history and your experience, where you sort of land and how you sort of think, think about yourself. Yeah. If it's actually like a barbecue or something, and I want these people to talk to me again, then I usually say, Hey, have you heard of like the paleo diet or ketogenic diet? And then I usually say, I've written some books around that. And usually I do also ask, have you heard of CrossFit? Uh, I co-founded the first and fourth affiliate gyms. And so that may be kind of a, an inroad there. If it's more of like a media interview, then I, I usually present myself as like a health translator because there's so yeah. much information that needs that. to be collated and sifted through and then translated for, for folks. And, uh, you know, like I look to people to 
translate the financial world for me. And like, if I'm trying to figure out a, a like I'm, I'm trying to do some uh, file compression type stuff. So I find some people that are in the geek space that translate using, you know, this open yeah. source uh, software to be able to solve some of the problems that I have. So I think, tr you know, information is largely free and ubiquitous. And that is almost meaningless at this point unless you have the time to go in and just devote huge uh, resources to understanding all this stuff. So I think in the different verticals that people are interested in, whether it's like archery or CrossFit or whatever, you find somebody who can translate this huge amount of information and then you start kind of systems checking is what this person telling me actually translating into better performance or better outcomes for us. And I think that that's where kind of like, folks will kind of agglomerate around a, a person around a certain topic. And, and so far I seem to be attracting a few more that I'm chasing off at least at, at, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That, uh, so first off, it was said really quickly and I think that people should, um, you're the first CrossFit affiliate, correct? Dave Warner, myself, Nick Dibbler, we co we co-founded uh, CrossFit North up in Seattle yeah. in 2003 and then I had an opportunity to move back down to Chico where I did my undergrad and we opened CrossFit NorCal, which was the then fourth CrossFit affiliate. Yeah. I love that. The idea was that we could get a CrossFit North and maybe we get mm -hmm. an East to South and a West and then we'd be kind of done. Right. And it'd be CrossFit like central. There, there was kind of that thought early on, you know, it, yeah. it was like pee on as big an area as you possibly could. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I uh, really love the idea of like the, the translator aspect of this. And it's, it's one of those, those questions I think everyone kind of has and they kind of navigate towards people for certain reasons or another. I think you said it really well is like, um, you know, is the information that's being translated uh, resonating in some form of performance? And if so, the trust levels go up and I'll come back to that person a little bit. And certainly you've, you've earned the credentials and you've earned the trust of a lot, myself included. Um, I know that like when we started off, it was mostly about paleo. Um, the zone world came into that. And then um, then since then, there's been this other these other movements or uh, terminologies that's popped up. It, and I wonder if maybe we should start like from a real broad brushstroke to help people, um, you know, connect some dots and we give some language to the words. But like there's paleo and they, these things kind of run into each other. That's why I want to like there's paleo, there's carnivore. There's keto and there's ancestral health. Right. Like, are we all just um, looking at the same thing from different angles or are these different things? Does it matter? Um, and do you espouse one over the other? Where do, what should, when we think, when we think of those three, four, five terms, what should we know and what should we be understanding? Man, that's a, actually a really, really good question. I, I do think that kind of the, the heuristics and the epistemology around that matter. Like uh, Greg Glassman did a great job in defining what is fitness to kind of set up a case for what is CrossFit. Like there was some, I don't agree with all of the conclusions that came from that, but it was a really, really slick epistemology that was, that was there, you know? And so for me, this idea of a paleo template is very powerful, but I think that the overarching idea of ancestral health is really the thing that um, 
provides a little bit more credibility and we we kind of avoid the the potential particularly when this stuff starts going into like mass media and whatnot of just being this caveman reenactment kind of story which i i think is a a huge um failure point i don't know if you guys follow brett weinstein in the dark horse podcast but i i, I love the podcast He's an amazing guy, um, evolutionary biologist, both he and his wife are evolutionary biologists. And they make this case that, um, you know, if evolution via natural selection is the foundational underpinning of biology and medicine and physiology and by extension exercise science are just offshoots of biology, then evolution via natural selection should be like this huge process. Like it should be, really inform our thinking around it what we do. And it really doesn't. If you talk to a physicist or an engineer, like things like Newtonian, you know, uh, physics or quantum mechanics are part and parcel to everything that those folks do, because they're the foundational underpinnings of the, the methodology that they use. So I do think that defining these terms are, are really valuable. I think that where you start seeing some granularity pop up. So it's funny, you know, Paleo was this term that was kind of generic, and so you can't really patent it. There's no IP around it, really. And so you had some folks that were smart, like the Whole30 folks, that basically took the paleo concept, created some somewhat arbitrary lane lines around it, had an intellectual property defensible kind of, kind of framework and a name and everything. And they've done amazingly well. And I can't tell you how many people I've met that they're, you know, will start talking. They're like, oh, you do the paleo stuff. Okay. I could never do that. I'm like, okay, well, what do you tinker with? And they're like, I do whole 30. I'm just kind of like, <laughs> check. Okay. So you don't understand this stuff at all, but you found something that works. And I think that like within carnivore and then like Michaela Pe Peterson spun up this uh, lion diet and whatnot. I think that people kind of get their own um, kind of flavor of these overarching concepts. And then also it's great if you, you could find something that is, just from an IP perspective, like defensible, you know, and it, it, it uh, having these uh, really generic terms and, and linking your wagon to them over the long haul is actually kind of problematic because mm. you, it, at least you can control the messaging of a, a topic. And that's a little bit of where it became challenging with, with even CrossFit itself. Like, they def defended kind of the the name and the brand and whatnot, but what constituted the methodology, you know, like a good CrossFit gym from a marginal CrossFit gym, it was really hard to define that. Whereas like if you seek out like a starting strength gym, you have a pretty good sense about what you're going to get, whether it's in Kansas or New York, like there's some real consistency to it. So I, I think that there's a lot of different reasons why these topics pop up. Uh, some of them I, I think are, are well thought out. Some of them are just kind of a land grab for a, a, like a business process, but I do think it is important to kind of understand these different terms and where they come from and kind of what they mean for sure. So how would you, to understand them and the difference between them, what would you say, like real, like if you were to give like a, um, an elevator speech for carnivore versus, so I think most people have a good understanding of paleo, right? Mm -hmm. Like caveman, what caveman eat, um, Carnivore, maybe people have a good understanding because I kind of get it. Like, you know, if, if you're a predator, you, you, type, you eat other living animals. <laughs> right. Uh, what about this? Like, so I, I still think there's a misunderstanding in terms of what keto is even. Um, and then certainly ancestral. Um, how does that, 
how do you, how do you, would you say, what is the difference between that and paleo? Because somebody might look at that and go, ancestral, okay, ancestral biology, paleo, and so on. Yeah. Is, or is there a difference? I don't even know. Uh, I'm more of a lumper than a splitter. So I tend to just cool. kind of throw everything together. <laughs> okay, and, that, and, that's and, cool. Yeah. And, and other people, the, the ancestral health though, encompasses like gut microbiome, circadian rhythm, uh, exercise and movement patterns, socialization, like just COVID mm. a, a, a kind of exposed in a really interesting way, a major failure point within the ancestral health model and paradigm relative to the way that we're evolved to live. We really do well, even in um, difficult, stressful situations, if we can have community and proximity to other human beings. And pandemics have been one of these rare circumstances where we, we see the, the stress levels and the difficulty of separating people is on such an entirely different level. And Zoom just doesn't fucking cut it. Like it, it, it helps a little bit, but it, it is not the same of like embracing someone and spending time with people. And the why to that is that we evolved in small extended family groups and it is woven into our DNA to be kind of, kind of tribal. And you get the odd individual every once in a while that is really a loner and they really don't need socialization with other people. And not infrequently, they don't really plug into the rest of society all that well, you know, because everybody else is kind of wired up differently. So this ancestral health model, it, it, nutrition is a piece of that, but there's so many other factors that nest under this concept. And I, I think that this bridges the gap into kind of the, the academic world, the people that are doing research on, on this stuff, you know, it, it does a good job of doing that. Paleo is a problematic term in that what exactly does that mean? Because when they when they laid out what went into the nutritional underpinnings, there's a lot of variation. Like there are the more northern latitude hunter-gatherers like the Inuit who eat a very low plant-based, you know, plant-inclusive diet. And then you have like the, the uh, Catavan people uh, around Papua New Guinea that eat a 60% carbohydrate diet, 70% carbohydrate diet. There were some commonalities there, but when, when folks would do research and they would call it a paleo diet, there was a lot of kind of gnashing of teeth about like, well, what were the, what were the protein amounts and all this type of stuff. And I do think that this is where a ketogenic diet is a little bit more amenable to research because we can at least agree on defining what a ketogenic state is. Your, your blood ketone levels or 0.5 millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate or higher. And we just kind of go from there. But the irony with that is that we have a classic epilepsy intervention, ketogenic diet that is very low protein, very high fat, very low carb. Then we have things like the modified Atkins diet, which has actually been used within athletic settings for quite, quite some time. And one does usually enter a state of ketosis, but it may be transient because of the amount of protein that folks are eating, but it's still technically a ketogenic diet. But, uh, uh, you know, um, people will just freak out about, uh, around, uh, well, that one's not really a ketogenic diet because the protein is higher than like 20% of total calories. And it's funny, even on the carnivore front, you have a, a factionation within that you have some people that feel like you absolutely must eat nose to tail. You've got to eat all the fiddly bits, the liver, the brains, the heart, the whole deal. And then other people have discovered that they they do best on like 
ribeyes or, or, or whatever, and they don't eat any variety in it at all. And, and uh, some people eat some dairy, some people don't, some people feel like a little bit of fruit here and there is okay. And I, I think it, the, for me, kind of the long and short of that, I don't get too ass chapped about these distinctions because I think what people are trying to do is to get some simple rules to help people buy in and do something different. Like you can't just nuke people with every bit of detail around nutrition and, and diet and lifestyle change if they're trying to do something new. Um, you've got to have some starting place. And some people pick vegan, some people pick a Mediterranean diet, some people are more in this ancestral health, paleo, keto, uh, uh, carnivore. And I think that what they're trying to do by and large is just provide some simple heuristics, some simple rules of thumb to be able to start with and move people forward. The real danger in all that to me is that then people take these simple stories and carve them into stone and create religious doctrine. And then, it, it, and then it, that's where the shit show starts because then you get the factionalization and people dig in their heels. I, I, I was kind of like that early in the scene because like a really low carb paleo ish type diet worked great for me. And, uh, and I had good performance on it and everything. And, and I couldn't believe that not everybody, that that wasn't the, the bee's knees for everybody. You know, I, I had health problems that fixed my health problems it improved my performance. Why doesn't this work for everybody? Well, not everybody's the same. And I, I had to break a good number of people to figure out that, you know, some folks doing really high motor activity need some carbs and probably quite a bit of it. So, yeah, I don't know if that 100 percent answers your question, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it does either, but <laughs> uh, it, it spurs a whole bunch of new questions. So I'm, I'm I've already forgotten my previous one. <laughs> Perfect. I, uh, Perfect. My memory is a goldfish. So uh, <laughs> 10 seconds and I'm ready for the next one. So. Perfect. Uh, all right. So yeah. So high carb, low carb, um, high power output activities. Um, we don't want to carve things into stone. And I know what the answer is always. I am on a podcast too. And it, the answer is it depends. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But is keto right for CrossFitters? Could be. Could be. How, it, it, it really, it, it really <laughs> depends. Um, the interesting thing around that is when you look at the workload of most CrossFitters, you could probably be in a ketogenic state most of the time and still consuming 200 grams of carbs a day, which in ketogenic world, that's like a wait. Say that again. Blowing. Say that again. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. I'm saying we're saying it because that's blowing my mind right now. Yeah. So like in standard kind of ketogenic circles, 20 to 30 grams of carbs total per day is usually what yeah. what is is recommended and accepted. Some people will goose that up to about 50 grams. But what we find consistently is uh, if people do kind of an induction phase, they do a legitimately low carb phase. They're in that 20 to 50 grams of, of carbohydrate per day. And do you say uh, that that's total grams or is that net? A, a, a net. Are you taking a, a, fiber a, out of that? Taking the fiber yeah. out of it. Yeah. Just yeah, what okay. is going to be metabolically present. Yeah. Yep. And you do a period of time to adapt to that. And then we start titrating carbs in and thinking about a strategic timing pre-workout, post-workout, uh, maybe most of the carbs earlier in the day. What we find is somebody doing a workload like CrossFit or MMA or something like that, they may not be 100% in ketosis all the time. And most people on ketogenic diets aren't 100% in ketosis all the time also. But what we'll find is people can be 200, 150, 200 grams of carbs a day, particularly on high Whoa. workload days and still in that 0.5 or higher beta hydroxybutyrate level. Yeah. And this is one of the things that, so what constitutes a ketogenic diet? 
you know, it's not necessarily the amount, it's the physiological output, you know, of being in a, a ketogenic state. And what people find then is that they may find kind of a sweet spot where they've got really good long-term motor. Like if they just need to go, they can go for, for days on that, that kind of keto fueled engine, but they also have enough glycogen in the mix that they can do these, these more intense, uh, physical bouts. Uh, maybe they're, they're putting in, you know, in addition to proper electrolyte supplementation, you know, 10 to 20 grams of glucose per hour when they're, they're doing high motor activity and whatnot. And still, they may be in a, a, a technically a ketogenic state. So that's where we have to be way more flexible with this. And looking at what works for a, a guy like me, I mainly sit on my ass. Like I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I lift some weights. But really, when you look- You look pretty good for a 48-year-old who sits well, on thank his you. ass. Thank you. I, I, uh, don't look at my backside, though. But um, <laughs> it, 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 that is the most worked part of me, just sitting. But, um, but it- what I need to do to be able to fuel my activity is so different than somebody who like is looking at buds qualification or something like that, or, or, or doing CrossFit. Um, so it, you know, could a ketogenic state be beneficial for somebody doing CrossFit? Yes. But again, we really have to structure it mainly for performance outcome. And we can have an eye on whether or not we're still in that ketogenic state. But this is where I, I think that people, um, you know, should I fast or not? Well, what's the goal? What's the context? Like, if you just think it's going to make you live forever, then we really need to back that up and and kind of unpack it. But folks will go after things and they'll, they'll hear about somebody that had a hundred pound weight loss on a low carb ketogenic diet. And they're like this super hard charging athlete and they're already like 10% body fat and muscular, but they want to get to 8% body fat. Um, just going ketogenic isn't necessarily the way to do that. Like uh, uh, what, what gets the hundred, what gets the person from 50% body fat to 15% body fat may be very, very different than what takes a 10% body fat down to 8% body fat. But when we see these really profound changes, then it, 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 it's striking. It's like, wow, if that worked for him, I only need to go this little bit of distance. So clearly that'll work for me. And oftentimes it's not the case at all. Okay. So let's, let's drill into that a little bit. So if somebody needs to lose the 25 to 50 pounds, ketogenic could be a really good, really good vehicle for them. Yeah. If somebody wants to go from 15% to 8% body fat, what, what direction would you, that's our, that's most of the people that listen right. to us, by the way, it's like we're CrossFitters. So most of the guys are probably hanging around the mid to high teens and they're trying to get down to the, the six pack, 12%, 10%. And most of the girls are probably hanging around the 16 to 25 and trying to get down again below the 15, 16, 18. If that's the case and people are like trying to lose the five to 10, they're trying to go from, um, you know, three muscle-ups to five. They're trying to go from a 340 Fran to a 315 Fran. So performance matters. They want to do better in the open. They want to look better on the beach. They are, you know, they're going to the gym um, four or five, six days a week, maybe doing a second session a day or two here there. They live and breathe this stuff. You know, it. where do you start with somebody like that? Because they've already obviously started. Like they're yeah. they're pretty well into the journey. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, now I try to start people funny enough, even though I'm saying that these things are different, I do lean much more heavily towards just a protein centric starting place 
whether we're talking about that very overweight individual or the more lean athletic individual. So the same, it's the same starting point. It ends up being much more similar in that we really focus on protein. And this is one of the, I, I think, uh, damaging after effects of like keto as a concept. You have people hardly eating any protein and eating sticks of butter or sticking, you know, whole sticks of butter in their coffee because of this fear of insulin and, and blood glucose and whatnot. And it, it, if you don't eat adequate protein, it's very easy to overeat whatever else there is, whether it's carbs or fat. So I really like to start people at at least a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein of a per pound of body weight. And so there's kind of a spectrum there. And if you're a 300 pound individual that is significantly overweight, then we're mainly focusing on the gram of protein per pound of lean body mass. Then we in, introduce a mild caloric restriction, or if person's more aggressive, a little bit more severe, somewhere between like 15 and 20% calorie restriction in, in the, the more overweight individual. And for the, the leaner individual, kind of similar actually. But then we figure out, um, do they do pretty well on a fat-based uh, fueling regimen? Is it more mixed, kind of more like a zone kind of deal? Or do we need to do more moderate fat and higher carb to be able to maintain their, their work output? But we really, uh, uh, my focus has become very protein centric as a beginning place. And then we kind of backfill the rest of the calories partitioned between fats and, and carbs based off of how the, the person best functions in that scenario. And, and I always remind folks that the, the place that they may perform best may be very, very different than the place that they look best. Like you can, you can shoot into a level of leanness where you look super jacked, you look super impressive. And uh, usually the relative strength stuff like muscle ups and max pull ups and stuff like that may be better, but actually their, their, uh, work capacity and definitely their, their, um, absolute strength numbers may decrease uh, significantly. And it's just like a, a two, maybe a 3% body fat level, but it, it you know, uh, a guy that's at 5% body fat generally is going to have poorer overall endurance and definitely not as good relative strength if he's at more like that 8 to 9% body fat level. And we tend to start seeing testosterone levels drop and whatnot. It's not 100% across the board. You get some genetic outliers. But yeah, I, I always remind people that um, you may want to look super, super jacked. But if you want to perform super well, that main, those two things may be at odds. And this is where you may periodize that stuff a little bit. Yeah, I love it. That's why bodybuilders aren't at the CrossFit Games, but yeah. most CrossFitters could probably go into a bodybuilding competition within a, a month. And do or so. pretty well. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay. So that brings up two questions. People hear um, um, protein. I love the numbers to start with, you know, uh, a, a, a gram for every pound of lean body mass for the leaner, in, uh, sorry, for the, the, um, for the heavier people that need to lose weight and then up that towards actual weight as people get more lean and performance becomes more of a, a metric. But as we talk about more and more protein, 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 people go like, okay, like protein, like, but protein for most people is at odds with like nutrient density. And what we look at is like a colorful plate. And I think that there's this misconception that, um, like, okay, so, um, a whole food diet, like a whole food diet is the healthiest thing. And a whole food diet, it has the highest fiber and the lowest amount. Isn't so where do those things, I mean, I'm, I'm 
hopefully I'm setting you up for something. Yeah, here, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, it, like, it, 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 it's good. Um, it, in Sacred Cow, so even though it talks a lot about the, the um, kind of, we cover the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. And so a bunch of this stuff may not be germane to people, but it's interesting when we dug into the health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system and diet, we really looked at nutrient density a lot. And it's interesting that it's difficult. Can you just explain quickly before you go into what nutrient density is? In general, it's the amount of nutrition, vitamins, and minerals specifically relative per calorie. And, and, and that's as the food exists on its plate. But the other part of that also is how much of you can actually get in your body. And so animal products are disproportionately rich in nutrition as it sits on your plate and are massively better absorbed relative to the nutrients that you mm. get out of plant material by and large. Um, it, this is where like people will do comparisons of like spinach versus beef and whatnot. And it, in general, it, it's interesting um, when you really hold the feet to the fire on this nutrient density story, plant material starts looking kind of suspect as a, as a, 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 a go-to. And I, I say that with reservation because I don't think everybody should eat carnivore and all the rest of that stuff. But um, God damn, if it doesn't kind of look that way at, at, at times, like wow. when you really dig into this nutrient density kind of, kind of story, um, fruits, uh, farewell, some roots and tubers, farewell, things like kale look really nutrient dense. And I'm not saying that they're not valuable, but the absorption of a lot of the nutrients are not spectacular. And when you start getting into grains and legumes, like it is, is even kind of a, a stair step fashion, um, more challenging. And this is some of the stuff also that is really, it still is something that I kind of spin out on. If you reduce general carbohydrate intake, it appears that your B vitamin needs also decrease. Your vitamin C needs may decrease. So the nutritional needs of someone on a higher carb diet, particularly if it's, it's refined versus a lower carb diet, may be different just based off of what is passing through their, their body metabolically. Somebody on a higher fat diet definitely needs more choline, uh, probably more, more taurine which is usually a, a, a achievable if you include some things like liver and whatnot. But depending on what an individual is eating, that can actually change the nutritional needs as well. But that nutrient density and satiety, um, you know, some folks in, in like the It Fits Your Macros camp and more of the, the evidence-based nutrition camp, you can find people that will weigh and measure anything. They will eat a half of a, an Oreo and they, they can live with that. But I think that these people are almost like serial killers. Like they, they, they don't happen that much out in the general world, you know, and, and somebody that's got two kids and a job and all the rest of that. Some people do it great. Um, it, it, this is one of the interesting kind of like almost straw man dismissals. It's like, well, paleo is hard to do or keto is hard to do. So don't even bother doing it. And I'm kind of doing that same thing around weighing and measuring your food. It's like, oh, it's a pain in the ball. So people, it's not true. Some people do well with it. Other people don't. I was a chemist by training and I would honestly rather hang myself with piano wire than weigh and measure every goddamn meal I eat. So it, it's just, you know, again, we have to find some customization and the way that we get people moving forward with this stuff. But I really, my, 
my sense and what's interesting is if we do a little bit of tracking and we put stuff in cr something like chronometer that gives us a breakdown of the protein, carbs, fat, and also the vitamins and minerals, kind of a meat centric approach with some seafood and then some berries, a little bit of roots and tubers and some greens, you know, doing that, that multicolored uh, plate, it, it plays out really, really well. And it, it, it and aside to that, and, and to me, kind of an interesting aside is somebody that's doing a modest amount of activity, um, some jujitsu, they're recreationally crossfitter or something like that. They can do that approach and they can eat kind of like a nutrient optimized diet, relatively low calories and motor along just fine on that. When we start pushing into elite athletic performance, it is virtually impossible to do that without adding in some really nutrient devoid foods. You have to start doing some more white rice or, or maltodextrin or, or, you know, refined uh, fats like coconut oil or whatnot, because the work output is so high. And I think that that's kind of an interesting diversion from that, that, um, you know, sickness, wellness, fitness um, kind of spectrum that, that Greg Glassman developed. I think it's interesting, but I think that it's actually like a triple point thing where things diverge at different points. And there's a trade-off between elite performance and just, you know, wellness at, at some point. So in terms of the nutrient density, staying on that, um, maybe like a, a, um, a different take on that is if somebody finds that they are, let me say this another way. Um, it seems like the best way to figure out the nutrients that you need specifically is through blood tests and blood markers. And if somebody was to get that, first off, do you recommend that? And then if so, what should they be looking for? And if they don't go that route, and then I guess that leads into the question of like supplementation, but maybe we'll just start with, let me just ask that first question is, um, is there a place, do you recommend people get blood, blood work done? Or is it no, if you just eat these nutrient dense foods and you um, live that lifestyle of moderate activity, low stress, you'll be, you'll be good. Yeah. I, I forget which one of my friends first turned this on to me. It may have been Dr. Kirk Parsley. I, I forget who said this first, but they, uh, it was a physician friend and they said, I only test what will change what I would do clinically. So they don't go digging just for data. And this is one of the challenges that I have right now with like all these wearable trackers and everything. People are buried under information and none of it informs anything that they would do differently. Like nothing. They just fucking yeah. spin I, out yeah. on, on data, yeah. you know? So the main spot that I would start looking for nutrient deficiencies or doing blood work around like vitamin status or whatnot is if there's, there's legit problems occurring, you know, like is there some GI dysfunction? Is the hair falling out? Do they have split nails? Um, there are some folks that have really made a remarkable cottage industry and in charging people a remarkable amount of money to do this blood work. And then there's the, the supplements that end up on the back end of that. And man, it's a great business model, but I, I, I don't really see it move the needle on that many people. Again, like if somebody was vegan for a number of years and they're debating about transitioning to a, a more like animal product inclusive diet. 
I would definitely check them for like iron, zinc, B12, and B vitamin general status. And maybe even just as a leverage to be like, hey man, this thing isn't working for you. So we either need to really double down on supplementing this or we need to change the diet at large. And you know, a, a guy that is really, really sharp on this nutrient density stuff is a, a guy, Marty Kendall. Uh, he's out of Australia. He has a, a, a program called Data Driven Fasting, which isn't just about fasting, but he's an engineer by training and his wife developed type one diabetes and he was appalled at the, the standard of care she was receiving. She was having all kinds of problems. And so he dug into this problem with a completely fresh set of eyes and an awesome skill set for data analysis. And he arrived at kind of a low carb, peri ketogenic, high protein type of diet. And then he's really done a deep dive on nutrient density. And he would be a great guy to have on. Like he, he's just taken this nutrient density topic to a, an entirely different level. And I, I have to kind of like tip my hat to him. He he's done an outstanding job on that. But it is interesting what he ends up recommending, and it's, it's awesome because it pisses everybody off. It's way lower fat than like the low-carb jihadis like for the most part because most people just don't do nearly as much physical activity as what they think. Um, they don't need as many calories as what they think. And if you really want to tick all the boxes of, of the, uh, the, the, you know, getting as, as broad and, and, and deep a nutrient profile as you need – tends to be leaner proteins, tends to be more. So when um, you say it's real, it's much lower fat, like what is the, like what you gave a nice number for protein. Can, is there a, a, a similar um, benchmark for us for fat? I, I forget, but it's definitely not like the 70% of calories that is generally recommended for, for like a ketogenic diet. It, it, it's just tends to be lower. And again, this is where, where it becomes highly variable because depending on the person's size, um, how much weight they, they do or don't want to lose their physical activity and whatnot. But it's definitely just generally lower than what is recommended with the standard ketogenic diet. And then his, his plant material recommendation is pretty high. And, and uh, a lot of it from kale, spinach, broccoli, uh, different, you know, multicolored fruits and vegetables and, and stuff like that. But Marty is a super sharp guy and, and is done in my opinion, kind of the deepest dive on this nutrient density world of, of anybody. Matt Lalonde ages ago, uh, did some really solid initial work and Marty actually got back in and reanalyzed his work and then has, has taken it to a whole other level. Yeah. When Matt did his thing, we started doing uh, liver and yeah. oh my God, yeah. liver is, liver is terrible. It's, it it's is a, so bad. It's a tough sell. Yeah. I do some oh chicken my God. liver we, here and, and we, there. And we did it like in every, Heather made all these, we tried it in every different form we possibly could. We, um, and the thing that we settled on that, <laughs> oh, this is a bad phase for us, um, was raw liver in smoothies. It's yeah. like the thing that you freeze it yep. raw, put it in a smoothie. And it's the thing you could taste the least. Yeah. Um, that which, was which gnarly. is a whole interesting thing to me. Um, I know it was that, like it was it was organ meats, and then it was like spices was number yep. two or something like yep. that. Yeah, and yep. then shellfish or something. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, hey, um, let me. Okay, let me get another. I'm gonna throw out a big another category for you. I'd love to hear your take on this, and I'd love to kind of just do some quick hitters. Um, gut health. So when when we talk about gut health. First off, like, what are we talking about? And then how do we improve it? 
really good question. And this is where I, I think paleo was really solid in highlighting this topic, that it was important. And I think it actually spurred a lot of the research that's happened in the last 10 years. Gut health broadly relates to the integrity of the gut. And, and we have a barrier in the intestines. It, it's not unlike, like people hear about the blood brain barrier. There's this interface where the blood that circulates through our body interfaces with the, the brain itself and the nutrients and the oxygen and everything diffuse through a barrier. So it, it, the blood from our, our main circulatory system doesn't go really directly into the brain. It gets, gets kind of sifted through a, a, uh, kind of a, a diffusion process and the gut is similar. So you think it's full of shit, literally, you know, when you don't want that stuff <laughs> in your body but you've got to get the nutrition that's in the food into your body. So we have these things called tight junctions and it's cells that are woven very tightly together. And there's a mucosal membrane, almost like a, uh, a layer of Vaseline in that, that all of the, the nutrients that we eat have to go through that. And some of the digestion occurs at that, that brush border, like a lot of the fat digestion occurs there. But if that mucus layer gets damaged, if the gaps are formed between the intestinal uh, epithelial cells, then whole intact food particles can make its way into the body. And this can lead to systemic inflammation, uh, uh, autoimmune disease, and a bunch of other you know problems. The what to do about it is really tough to pin down. Um, generally, what I find is an elimination diet is kind of where we start. And this is where something like paleo, um, specific carbohydrate, like they end up looking very, very similar in, in nature, but we tend to pull a bunch of the common problematic foods out. Hopefully we get clinically better outcomes. People look, feel, and perform better. Then we slowly start reintroducing foods to, to see how they react to them. Uh, some people recommend these really complex, like food allergy tests. I don't find much utility in them. Like every once in a while, again, they, they may be kind of useful, but I really lean more heavily on that kind of empirical outcome-based process. Uh, when you really critically look at the studies on say like prebiotics and probiotics and whatnot, about 50% of people improve on these products. Some percentage of them get worse and some percentage mm -hmm. of them have no benefit. And so I think that there's a massive amount sounds of, like a placebo. Same, sounds same. remarkably like a placebo, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what's funny is um, 15 or 20 years ago, you know, like a gastroenterologist would have been like, your diet has no influence on your, your GI health, has no influence, which seems so stark raving mad to me. It would be like going to a dermatologist and you've got a rash all over your body. And they're like, no, man, the, the weeding and, and the, uh, the poison oak and poison ivy you run through has no influence on the, this giant surface layer interface in your body, you know, and it's, or, or that, you know, a pulmonologist would be like, no, man, the smoking that you're doing has no effect on your lungs. The food you put through your fucking gut doesn't influence the gut itself. It's kind of like, but it, you can still find GI docs that are like diet doesn't change like ulcerative colitis or whatever. It, it's so remarkably ignorant. It, it's crazy, but slowly this has changed. Slowly people have realized, yeah, gut health is a real deal thing. Like we think that maybe Alzheimer's and Parkinson's may start in the gut, some alterations in the gut microbiota and the, the changes in the gut integrity. One of the first things that happens in overreaching and overtraining. So this is more germane to your, your CrossFit folks. 
one of the first things that happens in that process when people go too far is they lose intestinal barrier integrity. And people will notice when they are overreaching, overtraining, they'll start getting GI symptoms. And this is where you could have some like hard as nails, hard charger. They can eat anything they want until they can't. And usually the until they can't is when they're pushing really, really hard at the outer edges of performance. And within the bodybuilding circles, it, it, for as long as it's existed, usually people cut out wheat and dairy because they notice that they're puffier with, with these foods because they tend to promote some mild uh, systemic inflammation for folks. So we so, know that, okay. oh yeah, go ahead. We know that gut health is super oh. important, but the what to do for me really kind of falls to a clinical outcome. We may tinker with pre and probiotics. We may tinker with addition or removal of fiber, but really it's kind of a, a logic tree thing. Like we try something, yes or no, did it work? Great. Keep doing it. No. Okay. Then we just keep doing this logic tree until we find what works for people. Okay. But what's the, what's the base of that logic, logic tree? What is the elimination diet? Cause people have to eat something like it, it's, it, they're not going to like, they're not going to fast for three weeks and then yeah. start to add in it, it one varies thing. So, from person to person. You've got kind of like, so, paleo, which would be yeah, no for our listeners. What would you say? Like, where would you, where would you direct them? Like, I want to do this. I want to try it. I want to like see what works for me. What doesn't, I'm going to start with this as a baseline. What is the, this no grains, no legumes, no dairy for 30 days is a solid place to start. And that's the basic tape paleo template. Somebody that has an autoimmune condition, I would consider going more autoimmune paleo and even God help me. I would even say more carnivore at this point. And I'm the person that developed the term autoimmune paleo. Like I'm the first person that wrote about it, first person that developed it. And observationally, I think that carnivore just crushes uh, uh, the mm -hmm. autoimmune paleo diet for autoimmune disease. Like I just, the shit that I've seen it resolve, I am absolutely dumbfounded by. The, some other things that people can look into, a uh, specific carbohydrate diet is very, very similar to all of these things. And what you end up with is a list of acceptable and unacceptable foods. And, and I, uh, there's several different routes into this, and I don't know that I've really got a favorite. If somebody is experiencing a lot of gas and bloating, then I start thinking about FODMAPs. So a low FODMAP diet, which, which cuts out Can onions. Can you explain what FODMAP is? It, it's fermentable carbohydrate. So like onions, beans, um, apples, pears. But again, there's there's pretty comprehensive lists on that. But these this would be people who have, say, like a lot of diarrhea, gas, bloating. Looking at fermentable carbohydrate is a good place to, to go. If people are experiencing a lot of brain fog and kind of like lethargy and fatigue around their diet, then they might think about a histamine elimination diet. And this is also where this stuff just gets so mind-numbingly complex. Like this is kind of where like I... Yeah. Pull the ripcord, jump out. And this is where I start farming people out to specialists in these areas because it gets so granular that it's no longer fun for me at all. And I just don't like the handholding process through that. But the, the, the point is, is that um, none of this applies to everybody. All of it applies to someone. And there's somebody out there, like if you've got a coaching practice, there's somebody and you've got a hundred people, there's some percentage of your folks that if you're not doing some amount of elimination diet thinking, 
you're failing them in some way. There's, there's some significant improvement they can have in their health and performance. And it may again, only be cyclically, like somebody may deal with wheat or gluten in the off season, but as they start ramping up for the open or something like that, they start noticing, God, I'm, I'm having gut cramps all the time. And, and so you may need to cycle some of that stuff out and stick more with like rice and corn. But I guarantee you that within a hundred person group, if you're coaching folks, there's some percentage of them that would benefit from some amount of tinkering and massaging in this kind of elimination diet world for sure. Okay. Let's, let's, pull it back then and we won't geek out we'll we won't go to the place that you start to pull your hair out let's uh let's do um imagine that you're speaking to a um person that does crossfit five days a week they sit at their desk otherwise they are interested in competing in the crossfit open um they're in their mid 30s early 40s i know it's hard to be both but that it's matt this is a really special individual um and they're interested in performance. They're interested in looking better. They have no real um, issues, no gut issues really. They, they probably could sleep a little bit better. Kind of like your, your normal CrossFit athlete. Let me, let me ask you five or six different things and just like hit me with it like real quick. See if you first, can... thing I'll, first thing I'll hit is that I orient everything around if it improves sleep, it's good. Yeah, I love that. So okay. it, yeah, uh, yeah. Just says a post-workout shake. Post-workout shake, yes or no? Oh, God, it still, it depends. It depends on the person. <laughs> like, I mean, we've we've had a, a team, a third-place finisher at the CrossFit Games. Uh, we've had, I, I've personally coached team to third place, uh, multiple individuals to uh, top 10 placing, and I didn't use a shake with any of those people. Um, and, and we tinkered in and out, but we didn't find it really that beneficial for folks. I'm the crazy guy that thinks the bulk of your nutrition should come from food that you chew. And, and I'm so it, Even and with the it, high level athletes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, but like in a pinch time crunched, uh, yeah. if you can't yes. get the macros in otherwise, yeah, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, vitamin D yes. And ideally Fish from oil. the sun, uh, 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 real quick on the vitamin D ideally from the sun. Uh, if you need to buy a spurty vitamin D lamp, that's not a bad Ooh. idea. Um, short of so that, you would go lamp, lamp over supplementation. Generally, yes. And uh, uh, what you do in that, so let it, so if you don't want to buy a vit, so a, a membership to a basic tanning salon is going to be like fifteen to twenty bucks a month. What you do is you find a, a low pressure UVA UVB bed. It's the kind of like old beds that the people don't like because they always try to upsell you on the ones that only take like two or three minutes. You don't want high intensity. You want the lower intensity. Mm -hmm. And if you could be in there, so you would start off at like two to five minutes as your session. And you may, and this will depend on skin type and a bunch of other factors. But if you could stay in for 20 minutes, you only stay in for about eight to 10 because you are not doing this to get tan. You are doing this to enhance vitamin D production. So I did this over the last year, and my my sole source of, of kind of vitamin D supplementation was from doing a tanning booth for about six to eight minutes, two to three days a week, and I took my vitamin D levels from the 60s to the mid-80s just doing that. And what happens, if you have to supplement 
that's better than having low vitamin D levels. But in the production of vitamin D, it goes through this production of secosteroid cascades that increase nitric oxide production. So like vasodilation and, and it enhances testosterone production. It, it's a beta endorphin, uh, uh, you know, upregulator. And so you feel much, much better. So there's all this other good stuff that comes as a consequence of that, that sunning session. And, um, I've, talked about it on podcasts and kind of like the way to break down. But again, um, I didn't have a tan from doing this. Like I, I had a very minimal, you know, tan on my person from doing this. The goal was to be in as little as possible to maximize vitamin D, not induce a tan, which is going to need, uh, uh, necessitate me staying in there longer to continue to produce more vitamin D. Yeah. Just so you know, every 25-year-old girl that just heard this only heard go tanning. I know. I know. They, 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 had, they heard nothing else. The beta-hydroxybutylate and the all, yeah. They were like, I'm, I'm re-upping my membership. Well, and, and what I'm going to, what I am not advocating for is turning yourself into a leather handbag. And so it's, uh, which people lose their minds and they're like, my kid is a redhead. And I'm like, okay, gingers only stay in for a minute or 30 seconds. Like there is some safe level of, of exposure and safe is a relative thing. Like this is another thing in the age of COVID that people act like there's no fucking trade-off with what we do. There is a modest increase, a non-trivial increase in the risk of skin cancers with sunbed exposure. But all of the studies that have been done only look at people attending or not attending sunbeds. Virtually nobody uses a sunbed for vitamin D production. They mainly use it for tanning. Right. So they're maximizing the, the amount of time that they can be in there. And I, I, I think that there's some sort of a, a slope associated with that where if you – there's also a bunch of data that suggests that if people have increased vitamin D levels, it reduces their likelihood of all other cancers much greater than it increases their likelihood of developing skin cancer. Then we have these other interesting things that lifeguards and, and construction workers who get a lot of outdoor activity have remarkably low skin cancer rates. The person who tends to get skin cancer is the indoors office worker who gets burned on vacation, mm. doesn't go back out in the sun. And, and, and that mm. is actually more dangerous than the person who has serial exposure, but they they ramp up to it over time. Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, See, right. I can't uh, do short answers. I just yeah, suck yeah. At short um, answers. Fish oil. Yes. Go. Uh, uh, fish oil. Uh, this might be something to look at, at getting a EPA DHA to arachidonic acid ratio before you start supplementing. There are some kind of ideal ranges, and I forget what what they are off the top of my head, but that can help you dial that in. Um, I would recommend probably a really high quality liquid and you keep that in your refrigerator. You do not want to supplement with oxidized fish oil. It's pretty gnarly stuff. And if you're, if you're consuming wild caught fish, cold water fish, that's a, a great way a to week, do it. Like two, a couple of times a week, you're probably, probably yeah. good to go then if you're doing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, caffeine. Depends. Um, some people do great with it. So here's a, a, a thing to, to take away from this. When we look at the average half-life of caffeine within the whole human population, on average, it takes people eight hours to, like if you consumed 200 milligrams of caffeine, standard cup of coffee, it takes you eight hours to metabolize half of that. 
Some people metabolize that in four hours. Some people metabolize that in like 36 hours. So there are some people that they're like, I have a cup of coffee and I can't sleep at night. And people like, oh, that's bullshit. I will about guarantee you that the slow metabolizers, the person that is still experiencing problems at night from having a single cup of coffee in the morning. So it's another one of these things that just really uh, depends. I will say that the ergogenic effects of caffeine flatline very quickly. So like a half a cup of coffee tends to be more within the ergogenic window than like six cups of coffee. You what actually do you mean by get the ergogenic. What's it? What does that mean? The performance enhancing effect. So like a uh, uh, resistance to fatigue, mobilizing fat and glucose. If you overshoot that caffeine becomes an ergolytic, it becomes performance damaging. So this is where shit like monsters and stuff like that, like you literally should be drinking like a third of it a day, not the whole thing. And, and, uh, uh, it's ironic that in the doping circles, like the uh, Olympic, uh, drug testing circles and whatnot, the amount of caffeine that they will ding you for having in your system is clearly at a level that is already damaging your performance. So it's like this, this mm. ridiculous thing, but more is not better on caffeine. People will habituate to it, but if they really want it as an ergogenic aid, they should figure out what their minimum effective dose is and then really use it sparingly and targeted for, for a therapeutic effect. It shouldn't be something that you use in the same way every single day. And beyond the, the sleep effects and performance enhancing or diminishing, is there other, um, um, biological repercussions? Does it do anything into the, the arteries? Does it do anything to our gut? Does, is there other things that go on from caffeine consumption? No, you know, beyond that, the, the literature on coffee, both caffeinated and decaffeinated is that uh, there seems to be a linear correlation with increasing consumption and, and increasing longevity. Now it's correlative, but coffee does a lot of different stuff. It has like 600 constituents in it. So this is where I would recommend folks, if you just like coffee, you want kind of a warm beverage to, to kind of sip on and, you know, warm up your hands in the morning or whatever, um, shift to like decaf or like a half calf or something like be more targeted in the, uh, the caffeine application. But all that said, some people just don't react well to it. Like, uh, some people that have the histamine intolerance problems, they do, uh, negatively react to most, most coffee products, which they could use different caffeine sources like tea or even, you know, something like a, an energy drink or something like that separately. Okay. Speaking of energy drink, what, what about like beta alanine? What else are you already doing? Like, are you, are you super dialed on your sleep? Are you going to bed early? Do do you wear blue blockers before bed? Um, are you getting night? Like if you eat three meals a day, seven days a week or 19 of those meals, like whole unprocessed foods, uh, are you getting outside and getting an hour of sun a day on your skin? Um, do you have meaningful social relationships? Like all of that shit is going to matter so much more than beta alanine is. And if you really care about performance, all of those other things should happen first. And then, yeah, that's, that's great. There are some ergogenic, uh, benefits to that, but like, I would just go do a deep dive on like everything you can do to improve your sleep because there's nothing more anabolic, more restorative than sleep. And you can do all of this other stuff. And if you are, are still going to the well and, and limiting your, your sleep, 
then you're you're I can't think of a, a possibly more ergolytic a performance decreasing process than inadequate sleep. I love that. Um, we talk sleep a lot on here, so um, really love that. Um, would you put creatine in the same category? Creatine, everybody should be drinking it. Like it's Ha-ha. just it, like five grams a day. You don't need to to, to load it. it. Um, neuroprotective, <clears throat> antioxidant. I mean, some people respond well to it from a performance standpoint, even non-performer or, or non-performance enhancing uh, folks likely see benefit from like neuroprotection and whatnot. And it's so cheap, no, no real negative side effects to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, creatine is another one of those things that like, yeah, everybody should be using it. Older adults, like our aging parents and whatnot, if you can sneak some creatine into their diet, but this is also where a meat rich diet, you get significant amounts of creatine also. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, similar to that, everybody should be doing, is it, would you put bone broth in that same category? Should, should we all be doing bone broth? Probably. But again, like, uh, we've seen a lot of people that have histamine intolerance problems. So some mm. gut issues and bone broth makes makes a lot of histamine and the the that slow kind of breakdown of the protein. So, um, in theory, it's a really good thing, but for a lot of people, practically, it ends up being problematic from a, a gut issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do we feed our kids? Oh fuck. Um. I've written a couple of pieces on this. Um, So like even for us, we've, so I'm super gluten intolerant. Like if I get a hold of some wheat, like it'll really tear me up. Although that said, I've tinkered with my gut health over time and it's a lot better. Like I, I've had some gluten exposures and it doesn't cripple me the way that it's done in the past. It's still bad enough that I'm, I'm not going to go out and like pressure test that, but at least like my cross reactivity stuff seems to be a lot better than what it was in the past. Neither of my kids react super badly to gluten, but, um, my oldest has some problems with almonds and it sucks. Like I I thought I did everything right. Like we, we moved to a farm, we had farm animals, they played in the dirt, they had shit under their fingernails. Like I thought I did everything right in that regard, but they still, um, both of them have had a little bit of skin rash stuff. You know, uh, one of them's more, uh, kind of allergic to cats and, and whatnot. So it's kind of like, I, I, I don't know. I tried to do the best I could with that, but at home we're very protein centric. So you got to eat your protein. Um, my kids hate vegetables other than, so what do they eat for protein? What do you get? What do you give them? Everything beef, lamb, pork, chicken, fish. And they do all uh, that. They crush all that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. The oldest likes seafood. How do you prepare it? Like, what do you like, like specifically like, and first off, how old are your kids? Uh, eight and six, uh, two oh, girls. That's, that's, that's mine. Yeah. That's mine. yeah two Same girls, yeah. eight and six, um, soups, grilled meat. I use the, uh, uh, air fryer frequently. Um, the oldest likes seafood a little bit better than the youngest, but the youngest is kind of coming on. Um, the oldest does not like slippery stuff. So like fatty things. Whereas the youngest likes slippery stuff. So they do a little bit of, of, you know, you eat this and I'll take that. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bastard cooking bacon because one of them likes some slippery and the other one likes it crispy. And so like, I've got to take some <laughs> off at different points, but um, there's not really too many protein sources that the kids don't eat. Um, vegetable wise, they will crush a, a uh, kale salad with um, this particular, Ooh. 
uh, dressing that my wife puts together, which is olive oil, apple cider vinegar, uh, garlic, and a bunch of salt. I mean, like a shitload of salt, but my, I mean, literally like a bowl of that kale salad. My kids will go face first into most people that we've, we've encountered. If their kids try that, they will crush it. Uh, my kids will do a good balsamic vinaigrette. Um, they'll do asparagus a bit. They eat a lot of fruit, but, but I make it very protein centric. It's like, you have to eat the protein. And then mm. from there, I don't really care that much. Like if they want some rice, they want this. We don't have any gluten products in the house. Um, we buy a lot of, uh, high quality dark chocolate, like the 80 to 90% dark chocolate. I don't regulate that. They can eat it however and whenever they want to. They have full, complete access to it around uh, Halloween when they get all the shitty chocolate. I do monitor that, and they get like one piece a day after a meal. After about two weeks, the rest of it disappears. But here's an interesting aside. We let them self-regulate with uh, Rebel ice cream, which is a low-carb ice cream. They both really enjoy it. They like it, but they'll do one bowl of it, and then they put the bowl away, and they're good regular ice cream, like a Haagen-Dazs or whatnot, they'll eat the whole bowl and then they want another bowl and another bowl mm. and another bowl. And so like, if we go out to eat and, and like, uh, they offer like a small ice cream sundae as, as part of the thing. And the kids have done a good job at, at school and all the rest of the, you know, the other things they, they can have one. And we try not to call it a treat. I, I try not to emotionalize that stuff, but we'll let them have some of that. But I really try to give them options that they spontaneously self-regulate with. And I've talked to them about like, hey, um, if you had a bunch of Hershey's chocolate in here, would you just have one? And both of them are like, no, I would eat all of them. I'm like, that could be a problem, right? And they're like, yeah. And so we talked to them about the work that we do, about the fact that both of their grandparents have died early from metabolic disease. And that was a consequence of their diet. And that there's just consequences and that we try to stack the deck in our favor so that we make, you know, better choices and whatnot. Um, we have some corn chips in the house. We do some Siete chips. Again, uh, uh, we'll regulate those a little bit more because they're kind of hyper palatable and the kids will kind of go face down in a bowl and not come out until the whole thing is eaten. But I'm also just not as um, if they do a good job eating the protein, then it tends to mitigate the likelihood of them eating a whole bag of like siete, uh, uh, lemon, lime, you know, chips. So, uh, that, that protein centric approach has been interesting. And, you know, uh, Fridays, we usually do a uh, family pizza night. My wife makes some, some gluten-free pizzas for the kids. I do kind of a Mita type thing. Really interesting deal with that. The kids really like it. Uh, Nikki does an amazing homemade pizza, like a uh, great sauce and everything. But the kids spontaneously said, dad, I don't feel so good when I only eat pizza. Can you cook a little protein so I can have that with the pizza? Cause they would get about 60 grams of carbs from that, that, you know, personal pizza. And then you could tell they were like kind of lethargic and cranky and they just don't, they don't have like these meltdown poopy pants moments. Like they just really don't, unless they get a hold of like serially some shitty food. And, and, uh, it was interesting that even they asked for, like, they felt so bad after that. They really liked the pizza, but they internally noticed they're like, man, if I have some protein with this, I feel a lot better. And so I try to create it in a way that they are really driving the boat. Most of the time they make the decisions, they do the regulating 
And I just kind of offer a little governor here and there when it's in a situation where they're, they're, um, you know, it's just going to be really difficult to make good decisions. Yeah. Cool. With a, with a protein centric focus, what are you, what are you looking for in terms of making sure that they're, it's, it's good quality, like a better meat. Like what is it? What is it? What is a better meat? Um, I mean, we order a, a whole or a half grass-fed beef uh, for ourselves. We usually do the same thing with some lamb. When we were in Texas, pastured pork was really easy to get. Montana, it's it's more challenging. Um, but I'm honestly not that crazy at, uh, in that. Like we found these uh, Teton Waters grass-fed hot dogs that both girls absolutely love. Um, the Adele's sausages, they really like those. But um, we get like some maple sausage that we do for breakfast. We do some of the, you know, like ham steaks for breakfast. Um, we actually do, a, 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 I guess, a decent amount of like processed meat. But I'm, I'm not that wrapped around the axle of that stuff uh, relative to the not eating a bagel. They're not eating cereal, you know, all, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, for, so hearing that correctly, it's... Um a piece of chicken, any piece of chicken to you would like, um, in, you know, quote unquote, like industrial raised, uh, we, we try to get, uh, we try to get like the organic stuff, but if we, if we can't find it, if we're out to eat, I don't sweat it. Like when we buy for the house and a lot of that is just more honestly, like kind of the ethics and sustainability side. I'm not that spun out on like, um, hormones or antibiotics or anything else like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm way less extreme than probably most of the people that follow me, honestly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which maybe should be an insight for those folks, but I keep beating my head against the wall on that. So yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I will say this, uh, not to toot our horn, but, um, frequently in restaurants, another thing, just as an aside, we have a very minimal device uh, experience in our house. Our wife and I have online businesses, so we do that stuff. But like when we're out to eat, when we're at the dinner table, there's no phones, there's no devices. Um, the kids get very minimal device interaction. Um, we bring uh, art books and different like writing stuff to restaurants, and we all like sketch and color. And I still look like Fred Flintstone drawing shit, but people comment <laughs> all the time that, uh, our kids actually say, please, thank you. Make eye contact, shake hands, all that stuff. And that it's not like a meltdown shit show at dinner and that we are talking to each other throughout the whole meal. Like if we're out at a restaurant or whatever, like you look around and everybody's on a device and, and it, except, us and uh not that we're like elitist or anything but i i just think about looking back when i'm on my deathbed and like fuck man i wish i could have spent one more meal out on my device while i was hanging out with my kids you know and so we really try to draw all of that stuff uh together because the fuck when you want to talk about like addictiveness like these devices are crazy. Like, I, I don't know if you guys know this. It's impossible to set up on your iPhone, like a password lock to prevent someone accessing a particular, uh, uh, app. Like you can't do that for your kids. It's very, very difficult to set up that gatekeeping because they want the kids in there. They want full access to all of that. It's just, it's just like the fucking potato chip guys, you know, wanting to fly a drone over your house and drop, 
you know, here's a sample, guys, you know, give it a shot. So just as an aside. Once you pop, you can't stop. Yes. Yeah. 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 We could talk forever about the parenting thing, the, the screen times thing, distractions, um, you know, and how, how that, that it's more than just what it looks on the face level as well. It's not just like you're missing time with your kids. It's the cascade of bad crap that's going on internally and setting up stress. And now you're not digesting the food correctly and it just like it spins out of control forever. But, yeah. Um, we'll save, we'll save all that, especially the parenting stuff, which we could go on forever. We are also mm. parents of young kids and um, love chatting up about that especially the people that seem like they're doing a really good job of it. So we'll have you back on Rob. We'll see. Both kids may end up being strippers or something, but uh, we'll, <laughs> so far so good. So we'll, That's, we'll see how hey. it goes. Yeah. yeah. See each their own as long as and they're autistic with it and they fine. enjoy it. I know several that are very nice people. So yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm going to uh, go that, home and look up epistemology, um, quantum mechanics and Newtonian physics. Perfect. So just perfect. so I can, so next time we talk, I, I can understand what you're talking about. So. I didn't understand what I was talking about, so I don't know if it's going to help either one of us. So, Rob, what's the what's the best place for folks to find you to learn more about what you're doing, other than the maybe other than the books? What's the best place to uh, to send them to? Probably robwolf.com, and then also uh, join.thehealthyrebellion.com. Both places you can find our podcast. That's really the main thing that I'm kind of putting out in the world. Uh, mm. I have an assistant that posts stuff to social media, but I have abandoned it wholesale. It's kind of a dark place that leads to a cesspool. And so I've just uh, kind of refused to engage there. I, I still try to put out some value to to folks, but I just can't do the back and forth in, in those venues. But um, try to generate some really good content via the podcast. And then for a deeper dive, we have that uh, community within the Healthy Rebellion. I do write a lot for the drinkelement.com blog. So like I have a ton mm -hmm. of material that pops up over there also. Yeah. Not to, not that Rob needs the extra plugs, but, um, the, the, the drink element, the, um, electrolyte supplement, um, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, tried it and big fan. And then, um, anybody that hasn't read Rob's books, they're terrific. I, 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 really resonate. Oh my gosh, you're like, this, I can't end podcasts. Um, <laughs> but like the, the palate fatigue, of, mm -hmm. like I, I never even heard of that term before the wired to eat and the Joey chestnut and how he goes, like he's stuff, stuff, stuff. And like, no, I'm gonna have some ice cream and now I can have more yep. fries or burger, whatever. It's just like, I really encourage people to go. It's such, um, everyone will resonate. It's, it's so real world, um, nutrition talk. Um, so big fan, have you guys go check that stuff out. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Rob. We'll, Thanks, uh, we'll put everything into the show notes for links and stuff for folks who want to uh, get there easily. And thank you to everybody out there listening. Thanks for your ratings and your reviews. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Chasing Excellence. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.